Now, Olympus is not the only company to have this line of cameras, though they did excel at this type of uh, camera. Minolta also had a series of cameras. They had an A series of cameras, and then they had the Hymatic series of cameras. So in 1955, uh, the same time that Olympus uh, released their first camera in the line, Minolta released the Minolta A, and it was a coupled rangefinder. It had a 45mm f2.5 lens. Now, the body was a little bit thicker than the Olympus camera that came out at the same time. It it was relatively compact side to side, but it was relatively thick. So I would say it was two packs of cigarettes. Yeah, nobody smokes anymore today. It was three decks of cards thick. So it was a relatively thick camera versus the Olympus and, and later... Hymatics and Model A's that were, say, one and a half to two decks of cards thick. <laughs> That's an interesting thing to say. Uh, it's a little bit thicker. I, I suppose if I were to look at an Olympus at that point, it's probably an inch and a quarter to two inches. No, it's probably an inch to an inch and a quarter thick, whereas the Minolta was probably an inch and a half to an inch and three quarters thick. So let's say that in in centimeters, it you know anywhere from two and a half on the thin side for two to two and a half for the Olympus, and then maybe three to four on the uh, the Minolta. So it was, it was relatively thick. That's that's my point. It's relatively thick. But the lens actually sat kind of down inside the body, so it didn't protrude very much on the front. It, it was a, a little bit... I, I You know, they went away from this form factor, so I do think that it probably was a sales issue, and it was probably a use issue as well. So the later model, so in... Um, 1966, so this would be 11 years later. The last model in the A line is the ALS, and it has a form factor that we consider much more reasonable. It's much thinner, and it had then a 45mm f1.8 lens. Now, something I did not really point out in the first half of this uh, of this half of the episode um, is that you'll notice that the lenses go from 40 millimeters to 48 millimeters. We don't see any 50 millimeter lenses. Now, this is the range that many people, including myself, and I've talked about it in other episodes, I consider that to be normal. Like, if I'm looking through one of those lenses and I have my one eye looking through the lens, one eye looking through the camera, I'm going to say somewhere between 42 and 45 those, my vision would line up in fuse in that it, they're the same kind of view. 50 millimeter lenses are the standard on 35 millimeter SLR cameras. And, and, and often you'll find in the digital age, you'll find these smaller sensors and you have to do some math. Um, like the, the Canon lenses are one, uh, you have to do 1.6. Am I right? What you have to multiply at 1.6. The Fuji lenses you multiply 1.5. So, for instance, a 20 millimeter lens 
would be uh, on a Fuji camera, it would be the equivalent of a 30 millimeter lens. So it's the full 20 millimeter lenses plus half of whatever that first number is. Well, they all are kind of going for that 50 millimeter lens, that 50 millimeter normal in these newer cameras. And and they've done that ever, you know, since the 1950s. I think that that is a slightly tele lens. It's a slightly telephoto lens. I, it, it's a little bit too far out, too much magnification. Um, and I, you know, I, I've had trouble really finding out why they did not make very many lenses in the 40 to 45 millimeter range for both interchangeable lens range finders and interchangeable lens single lens reflexes. So uh, it's it, it's baffling to me why there is that difference. And, and that may be one of the reasons why I love these 35 millimeter range finder holiday cameras so much. Okay, uh, back to Minolta. I, you know, that was a little bit of a tangent, but uh, back to Minolta. The Hymatic was first released in 1962. It had a selenium-coupled light meter. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about selenium meters a little bit more later on. But selenium meters, uh, once again, are those kind of bubble window meters if you think of like a glass block wall, these little light meters would have a rectangle on that that had textured uh, plastic, textured glass that, that looked like one of those uh, glass block walls. And selenium light meters were really great. They needed no electricity. The problem was they had a finite life. So if you keep them covered, they can be working perfectly fine today. If you left them uncovered, they would exhaust. They would run out of their oomph and, and they're no longer good uh, good today. But seriously, I have, I've had cameras that have 50-year-old selenium light meters that work perfectly. But this Hymatic, the Hymatic, back to the Hymatic, it was released in 1962 and it has the distinction of going into space with John Glenn. Now his model was branded as an Ansco auto set, but it is the Minolta Hymatic. It was just rebranded by Ansco. It was one of the first cameras with a coupled light meter and automatic exposure. So that was one of the reasons why they chose that because, you know, he's in a spacesuit, he's got a helmet on, he has limited visibility. So it would be very difficult for him to operate the exposure settings on that camera. Now, the Hymatic 7 was released in 1963. This is Minolta's equivalent to the Olympus 35 SP and SPN. Uh, the Hymatic 7S and the Hymatic 7 were two excellent cameras. Now, they were about the same size as the 35 millimeter SLRs of the day, and they got about the same amount of quality image, but they, you know, but it was a fixed lens. And once again, my father had a Hymatic 7S that I grew up using. You know, I thought of it, you know, it's not an SLR. You know, I'm uh, early 80s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. I'm borrowing this camera from him. 
and you know in my teen years and I'm thinking it's a crap camera because it's not an SLR I didn't know I was ignorant and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing these shows is because I want to dispel that ignorance these SLRs were getting just as good a quality of an image as a single lens reflex camera was of the day one of the things about the Hymatic 7S is that it had a ring for the shutter speed and a ring for the aperture on the lens. So you could adjust both of those and there was a match needle meter within the viewfinder. So you could, uh, it was essentially very similar to SLRs, but that shutter speed dial was not on the top deck of the camera. Because it was on the lens ring, it was easy to use, you know, to switch back and forth with those looking through the the lens. You would do all three maneuvers, focus, then aperture and shutter speed, all with your left hand, all on rings that are on that lens barrel. And that made it very effective and very easy to use. Each one of those rings also had an A on it. So there would be F22 you know, F16, F11, F16, F22, then an A. If you put it to A and then you adjusted the shutter speed, the aperture would be automatically controlled by the camera. Now, you could also set the shutter speed to A and then the app, then the camera would control both the shutter speed and the aperture. You could leave the, the shutter speed on A and switch it, you know, make your adjustments using the aperture ring. So it was a fully automatic camera that both had shutter priority and aperture priority. And once again, these were cameras that were available in the 60s and the 70s. And and that's a pretty, uh, you know, or 1963, well, that was the Hymatic 7. The 7S, I think, was released in 67, somewhere right in that range. It had those types of controls that are are very advanced, are very advanced and very convenient, very good design. As I said, one of the things about the Hymatic 7 and the 7S is that they were large cameras. They were the size of full-size 35mm SLRs of the day. So they're pretty big by our standards of a holiday camera. But the Hymatic E was much more compact, yet it kept a fast lens. It had a 45 millimeter f1.7 lens, and it had some automatic settings as well. So the Hymatic E is a pretty good example of a, of a compact travel camera. It's a little bit bigger than a pocketable, but you know, if you have big pockets, you certainly could use it as a pocketable camera. I'm going to go ahead and take a break. We'll be right back. Now, there are some other companies that produce similar cameras at the time. Canon had the Canonet. Konica had the Auto Series, the Auto S. Auto S2 and Auto S3, and I'll talk about the Auto S3 here in a minute. Uh, and there, and there were some other companies across across the globe. Agfa had a series of cameras at that time in Germany uh, that were similar. We did not see very many cameras in the U.S. 
that were made in the U.S. during this time that are like this. Though Ansco certainly rebadged some cameras, and I believe Kodak rebadged some cameras of the time. So one of the reasons why I'm doing this show, besides wiping out the ignorance about the quality of these cameras, is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show was I wanted to make these cameras sound a little bit more attractive to people who are thinking that they want to get into rangefinders like Leicas. Uh, they want to get into a Leica rangefinder, and and a, a lot of that has to do with the name and the prestige. But before you do that, I highly recommend finding one of these cheap travel holiday cameras and figuring out whether you really want to work with a rangefinder. Now, remember, you're not looking through the lens. You're looking through a viewfinder that has a rangefinder patch in it. So you have to use your brain in a way differently from the way you would use your brain shooting a 35 millimeter SLRs. So even though many of these cameras uh, are, they're relatively cheap, Almost every camera that I talked about today can be had for less than $100 US, and I'm, I'm saying that in early June 2019. They may go, they're probably going to go up in price, or they may drop in price, I don't know. Um, but they um, are, are certainly available for a, a relatively cheap amount, considering these cameras would be, you know, the equivalent of $500, $700, $1,000 when they were new. So they're they're relatively cheap. They're relatively plentiful. They're easy to get into. And they're easy training grounds for those more expensive luxury 35mm uh, rangefinder cameras. They also have very good, competent, compact lenses. And once again, almost all of those lenses are really in the true normal range as I'm going to determine it. True normal range, about 40 to, to, to 48 millimeters, as opposed to the 50 millimeter, 50 to 58 millimeter lenses that you see on 35 millimeter SLRs. Many have automatic exposure systems. Now, also many have automatic exposure systems that are now dead. So if they do have an automatic exposure system and the light meter is not confirmed to be working, make sure it's one that you have control over both the aperture and the shutter. Uh, many of them controlled one or the other, and you just want to make sure you have control over both of them. And then either use an external light meter or the Sunny 16 system and, um, and, and systems like that. One of the things to remember is if you buy a selenium metered model, and remember that's like having a little glass block wall on the front of it, uh, or maybe even around the lens. Some of them had uh, that uh, selenium meter around the outside of the lens. Confirm that the light meters work. Many of them have coupled light meters, meaning that the light meter could control either the aperture or the shutter speed on the camera. Or, But most of them, uh, they had uncoupled light meters. So you would have to match a needle by, by adjusting those two uh, the aperture and the shutter speed. Many of them are significantly smaller than the SLRs of the day and that they can be considered pocketable. Now, if you're going to go out and buy one today, 
I'm going to suggest several models and most of these models, uh, with two exceptions, I have seven of them to, to recommend. For most of these models, they're available under $100. Some of them are available between $1 and $200. And then there's one that's going to be $200 and more. The Hymatic 7S, this is one of the ones that is in the $100 range. Hymatic 7S is highly suggested. The Canon Canonet QL17. QL stood for quick loading. And that is a system of loading the camera that was, you know, that was quick and it was easy. And um, it was something that, that you could do pretty much, uh, you know, pretty much foolproof. Let's say that. So you see many that are QL17s, but it's the Canonet QL17. 17 means it had an f1.7 lens. There are also QL19s and QL28s. The 19s have an f1.9. The 28s have an f2.8 lens. So that's how that numbering system worked. Then there's also the Konica Auto S2. And that's another highly competent camera within this range. One camera, and these are are cameras that are a little bit bigger, uh, but have a very good quality. These first four are cameras that are a little bit bigger, but have a very good quality. Then there is the one that I talked about earlier on, the one I'm going to get the tattoo of the lens, is the Olympus 35 SP or SPN. There really is almost no difference between these two cameras. The SPN has a little button that you can press to check the the battery. You know, it's a battery check button. That's the difference between the SPN and the SPN. Don't pay an extra 50 bucks for a battery check. You can tell whether the battery works by looking through the, the, the window and whether or not the needle goes up and down. I wouldn't spend extra on the SPN, even though I do have an SPN because I got a very good deal on that SPN. They are currently, I just checked earlier today, they are currently more than $200 on eBay. And again, I'm in May 2019 right now. They may be more or less when you go out and look for them. Now, there are several broken ones or, or, or versions that have fungus in the lens, and they're considerably cheaper. So, you know, buyer beware. You know, take that flyer if that's something that that you're interested in doing. I'm going to also suggest three for their compactness, their small size. The first one is the Hymatic E, and that is an extremely small, very compact, semi-automatic camera that, uh, you know, once again, I, I recommend. Then there's also the Olympus XA, and this is going to be the higher higher end of the price market. It's going to hover around $100 right now. The Olympus XA. And once again, there were some siblings, the XA1, XA2, XA3, and XA4. Do a little bit of research if you go into those and make sure you're getting something that you want. Uh, The only one that is a rangefinder is Olympus XA. Now, the last camera that I'm going to recommend is actually four cameras. It's it was sold under four different brands, and the scuttlebutt is that it was made by a company called Cosina that also makes the Voigtlander 35mm interchangeable lens rangefinder cameras that are very much like the Leicas um, that are available today. Cosina made these cameras for Konica, uh, Konica Auto S3. 
the Minolta Hymatic 7S2. It was also a Vivitar 35ES, and it sold in Germany as a Review 400SE. So you may find that camera anywhere under any one of those different names. And it's going to be more than $100 generally, but it's snap it up. It's a, a compact camera. It's got a super excellent lens. Now, one of the things that I'm going to say is the Minolta, the Vivitar, and the Review, they all have listed, the lens listed as a 40 millimeter f1.7. The Konica Auto S3 has a lens that's listed as a 38 f1.7. Now there's something to know about the standards for technical there were technical standards within Japan and one of the things is that you could claim within 5% up or down of the actual. So if this is one of the this is one of the um uh the things there's there was a lens that Canon made. It's a 50 millimeter F0.95. Now, there are people who swear this is actually an F1 lens, but they could claim it was an F0.95 because it fell within that 5% margin. Well, the Konica Auto S3 is listed as a 38 millimeter lens. Well, that's still within that 5% margin of the 40 millimeter lens, which I think it really is. I'm going to almost 100% guarantee you that it is the same lens, even though it's listed as a 38 millimeter lens. And you know what? If it's a different lens, it's actually a focal difference. There's actually a focal length difference on that lens. It's just as sharp and just as good, and you'll never notice the difference. So uh, I highly recommend any one of those three. The cheapest one is the Vivitar 35ES. Uh, you know, and possibly the review. If you're in Europe, the review is going to probably be the cheapest one that's out there. So, well, that's what I have for these compact travel holiday 35 millimeter rangefinder cameras. Even if you're somebody who's an SLR person, I recommend that you get one of these and just try it out. There's a lot of joy in shooting these rangefinder cameras. And the other part of this is if you get one of these and you just absolutely hate it, you know, sell it on. That's okay too. I love them. That doesn't mean that you have to love them. Do what you 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 think is right on that. I, I want to assure everyone out there that the quality is not a reason to avoid these cameras because they are a very good quality cameras. If you have any questions, I have a once-monthly podcast of questions and answers. If you have a question, go to the website, GetStartedWithFilm.com, and fill out the form. Or send me an email, Graham at GetStartedWithFilm.com, and that's spelled G-R-A-H-A-M at GetStartedWithFilm.com, and put in the subject line whatever the subject of the question is, so I know how to organize each question. If you are on Instagram, you can follow the feed of the show at Get Started With Film. If you hashtag your posts, Get Started With Film, I have a pretty good chance of seeing your work and I might feature it in the show's feed. Our music comes from filmmusic.io. This track is Poofy Real by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com.
and it's licensed through Creative Commons.